This is an ABC podcast. Thousands of Australians are getting on bikes for the first time as shops report a doubling in average sales. It's evident on the cycle lanes of Australian cities where numbers of riders have jumped by between 50 and 300%. There is an enormous tsunami of problems coming out of COVID to rebuild our economy. It is that public transport will not be able to carry the people that it normally carries. It's why some cities are taking action. London will extend its car-free zone into one of the largest in the world, which is why Stephen Hodge is pushing to rapidly gear up Australia's cities and towns with temporary cycle lanes, as Berlin has just done. Since the onset of COVID-19, the sale of bicycles has skyrocketed. Everyone wants to cycle, either for exercise or to avoid travelling on public transport. This is not the first time that cycling has had a boom. And let's not forget that for decades, cycling was a significant form of transport, including here in Australia. Hello, I'm Annabelle Quince and this is Rear Vision on Radio National. The story of the bicycle is the story of transport, transport infrastructure and cultural difference. How and why have nations like the Netherlands and Denmark retained cycling as a transport mode, while in the US and Australia it's become a sport? And could the bicycle in a post-COVID-19 world become a major form of transport again? The modern bicycle evolved over many decades, arriving in its current form in the 1890s. But the first bike to catch people's attention was the penny farthing. Carlton Reid is a journalist for Forbes.com and the author of Roads Were Not Built for Cars. The penny farthing was like the red Ferrari of the day. They were very, very fast, very, very expensive. So only elites could be on these bicycles. So take away the notion of, you know, a man, a wax moustache with a top hat. That, that They were the, not the people who were riding these things. They were the young, athletic, rich people of the day. It wasn't until the development of the so-called safety bicycle in the 1890s that the bicycle became accessible. Jim Fitzpatrick is the author of Wheeling Matilda, the story of Australian cycling. The bike, as we know it, was actually invented or came together in 1885. Two equal-sized wheels, a pair of pedals, a seat that you'd sit on and handlebars, the kind of thing you think of today. And the other important driving force was the pneumatic tyre, that is, air-filled tyre, which was invented in 1888 by an Irish veterinarian, John Boyd Dunlop. And so the pneumatic tyre and the bicycle together by the early, mid-1890s was a craze in Australia, as it was around the world. First, the bicycle was very expensive because it was not mass-produced. Harry Oosterhaus, Professor of History at the University of Maastricht. It was basically for an elite who could afford it, who had time to learn it and to bicycle as a kind of pastime during vacations or weekends, so people with spare time who could afford it. Royal families around the world certainly European royal families, they were the first to rush onto bicycles. So you had your first major bicycle boom in the 1890s. So if you wanted to show how rich you were, one of the ways you could do that was by riding a bicycle, because these are vehicles for the elites. But from around 1900, 
gradually bicycles became cheaper gradually in the first decades of the 20th century it gradually became a mass means of transport so apart from the the upper and middle class it also became accessible for the labor class to use it as a utilitarian means of transport so first it was an elite thing for sport and recreation but then later on it became a utilitarian means of transport for many more people and that happened in the i would say the first three decades of the 20th century and i'm wondering what were the roads like i mean how how easy was it certainly in the first part of the 20th century to actually get around on a bike were there decent roads in the last part of the 19th century that was a problem, yes, because they were dirt roads and not asphalt yet. But interestingly, these cyclists, the middle-class cyclists, immediately began to form interest groups and lobbies to lobby for better, more and better roads. So actually, cyclists, before the car was introduced, were an important force in society for promoting the building of better quality roads. And in that way, the bicycle, ironically, also facilitated the later introduction of the car. The bike was in Australia by 1890, but effectively, usably, 1892 through it came on very, very strong. But the craze eventually faded by 1900 as a craze. But of course, the bicycle was a solid, reliable, humble tool, I call it, after that. And they were just widely used all over the place. There was a lot of tourism and cycle clubs and racing popular. But as, as a work tool, as a way to get around back and forth to work, it became a staple of Australian society well into the 20th century. There's plenty of work all the year round on an Australian sheep station, but in the shearing season, the tempo quickens. For example, shearers in Australia, from the late 1890s to about 1915, virtually all shearers used bicycles, and that, a fact that's long been forgotten. The Shearers Union had an agreement, and it required shearers to provide food, accommodation, and protection for bicycles. That was part of the Australian Workers' Union Agreement in New South Wales, for example. And we forget today with motor cars what it was like if you didn't have a bicycle or access to a horse. It was just a long, tedious walk from one place to another, and that's how people did it until the bike came along. Across Europe in the first part of the 20th century, the bike was a major form of transport. Yet nations had very different policies in relation to cycling. In the Netherlands, cycling became an accepted form of transport, whereas in Austria and Germany, the focus was on public transport. Anna Katharine Ebert is the curator of transport and mobility at the Vienna Technical Museum. 1910, the bicycle becomes cheaper and cheaper and more and more people can afford a bicycle and it does become a means of transport all over Europe, Germany, France, as well as in future cycling nations such as the Netherlands and Denmark. And the difference between these countries is really how much the bicycle becomes recognized as a means of transport and how much road engineers and politicians think that they should include the bicycle in their road plans, in their traffic plans. For instance, in Germany and in Austria as well, the bicycle 
is a very common means of transport, but politicians and road engineers don't think that the bicycle should be that important in their strategies and planning. In Vienna, they really promote public transport. And in Germany, they tend to think, well, the bicycle is inferior technology and the future belongs to the car. And so we focus on the car and prepare our roads for the car. And so in that sense, they also exclude the bicycle from their traffic planning. In contrast to that, in the Netherlands, they actually include the bicycle and the car, the two main means of transport they focus on for their road development. And that already provides a very different situation in these countries, Denmark and the Netherlands by the 1920s, where you have really big network of bicycle paths Whereas in other countries, you have lots of uh, bicycle traffic or cyclist traffic, but not much road development. I'm just wondering, why do you think it is that in the Netherlands and in Denmark, they could accommodate two things? The car was coming, they could accommodate that with, with cycling, but that in other countries they couldn't. Is there something sort of culturally very different or did they have a different cultural approach to bicycles? Yes, I do think that the image of the bicycle was different in those different countries. But that image was, of course, formed within certain social and political frameworks. In Austria, in Germany, you had a very strong working class movement. And we have working class cyclists in both countries who, who travel the countryside on their bicycles and they promote uh, socialism in, in Austria and Germany. And you do not have any of that in Denmark and the Netherlands. That sort of reconfigures the bicycle in Germany and Austria as something that belongs to the working class. And of course, that puts politicians and road engineers who tend to be middle class in the position of thinking, hum, what shall we do with this working class bicycle? Shall we deal with it or shall we just ignore it? And obviously they decide to ignore it. In Vienna, they think that they should really focus on public transport because there are obviously a lot more jobs to be created if you promote public transport than when you let people cycle. In Denmark and in the Netherlands, first of all, th these governments don't promote public transport. At the same time, there isn't a strong working class. There is some movement, but not much. And the, the middle class takes a very different approach, and that is a sort of an approach to, to turn cycling into a national symbol and to promote cycling as something very much Dutch and very much Danish. And that also happens in, in opposition to Germany, which is, of course, the big neighbour of both countries. In the UK, cycling was also an important form of transport and there were attempts to create Dutch-style bike networks. But as in Germany, bicycles were seen as working-class transport. The UK in the 1930s, 40% of the population were on, were on bicycles. And did that transfer into infrastructure? It did, yes. They were called cycle tracks and they were modelled on the Dutch experience. In 1934, the British Transport Secretary asked his equivalent in the Netherlands for plans for how to, to build bicycle networks and how to do bicycle paths. And his equivalent sent across the maps, he actually translated them into English, sent them all across, showed them how they did them in the Netherlands, and then 
actually started building Dutch-style bicycle paths in the UK. There were about 400 of these bike paths put in and paid for by the, the national government. They actually fell out of use almost as soon as they were put in. And, and a lot of them are either underground, so they've been buried, or they've been repurposed, or motorists are basically parking on them now because they just think it's their private driveway. And in fact, it was a 1930s Dutch-style cycleway. 1949 is the high watermark for cycling in the UK. And then from 1949, we went from like 25% of people were on bicycles. Well, that's the exact same modal share that the Netherlands got today. And then between 1949 and 1970, that 25% modal share went to 1%. So cycling absolutely fell off the proverbial cliff. It just completely fell away in a very short period of time. In 20 years, it went from a mainstream form of transport to it almost doesn't exist. Well, how do you explain that? Generally, it was just people fell out of love with bicycling. Motor cars, second-hand market for motor cars, even in the 1930s, the working man could afford a beat-up motor car. And people just wanted to... They had aspirations. It was after the Second World War. And because bicycling was seen as very working class, an aspirational population, they threw away their bicycles. They didn't want to be associated with working-class transport. This is Rear Vision. I'm Annabelle Quince, and we're tracing the story of the humble bicycle. In the United States, the bicycle never really took off as a transport mode in the early part of the 20th century. Firstly, because most American cities developed mass transit systems, and secondly, because of the motor car. David Vega Barakowitz is an urban planner and urban designer with WXY Studio in New York City. In the United States, trolley systems were very quickly developed beginning around the same time as the bike boom and even earlier, first with the sort of horse-drawn omnibuses and then later with cable cars and then electric trolleys. Most mid-sized, even some small cities, and obviously the large cities in the United States, had fairly extensive trolley systems by the early 20th century. And those trolley systems fueled early suburban development along the inner ring of most cities, essentially creating a pattern of uniquely American urbanism that didn't exist in Europe in the same way. And so the bicycle ended up being able to sort of flourish. Automobile sales really began to take off in the United States, 1920s, after World War I, at a time when European countries and European cities were largely economically devastated. And so, you know, the bicycle is a more affordable form of transportation, you know, while it kind of languished as a toy for children in the U.S. from the 1920s through the 1950s, you know, became a form of mass transportation in Europe. While the bike was a major transport mode in Europe in the 1950s, after that, as countries began to rebuild their cities post-World War II, everything changed, especially in Germany and even in the Netherlands. 
We do have traffic counts from the 1950s where 70% of traffic was cycling, really a huge number. So we can say two-thirds up to three-fourths of all traffic on the streets was cycling traffic. So that means almost everybody was cycling. But at the same time, in terms of traffic planning, it's game over for the bicycle. So in the 1950s, when they had to rebuild German cities because they were all destroyed after the war, they literally didn't include the bicycle at all. The future is the car. Now we have a chance to build new modern cities and the new modern city will be a car-centered city. After World War II, the Dutch had to rebuild their country and they became incredibly wealthy. This led to many more cars in the streets. So buildings were demolished to make room for the car. City squares were turned into car parks. In the Netherlands and in Denmark, there's also a lot of car driving. No, no question about that. And there are enormous problems with cars here in the Netherlands because it's so urbanized. We have so many people here on a small spot. Cycling was marginalized. It decreased by 6% every year. And 3,300 lives were lost in 1971 alone. Over 400 of these deaths were children under the age of 14. Stop the child murder called for safer streets for children. Their calls were heard. Especially when in 1973 the first oil crisis halted the country. The Dutch government responded to these two crises by introducing policies that promoted cycling and restricted car use. And we have laws in transport laws or infrastructure laws which say if you build a road, you also have to build an additional bicycle path. So they, uh, car and bicycle are treated, I would say, not completely equal, but much more equal than in other countries. And I should add, Dutch cyclists paid dearly for those cycling paths because there was a, a bicycle tax in the Netherlands from the 1920s onwards, which was actually fairly high for every bicycle that could be found on the streets of the Netherlands. So Dutch cyclists literally paid for their own path. Bicycle, bicycle, bicycle. I want to ride my Despite the domination of the car and freeways in the 1950s and 60s, by the 1970s there was a resurgence in cycling across the globe, especially in America. The bicycle boom that happened in the 1970s, you can date from roughly 1970 to 1974, but you can go back slightly before 1970, so 1968, 1969, because that's the start of the environmental movement. And then the baby boomers, they're becoming teenagers in the late 1960s and the early 1970s, they're very much influenced by the growing environmental movement. They've got money in their pocket all of a sudden, and millions of them just latch almost overnight onto bicycling. And it was very pronounced in America. It's happened everywhere, but in America, it took the country by storm. Today, with, with COVID-19, we see around the world, bicycle shops, you know, it's like the new toilet paper. You can't get a bicycle for love nor money. Well, 
We saw that in the 1970s, but it lasted for four years where you couldn't get bicycles. It was quite the phenomenon. During the bike boom of the 1970s, 72 to 74, bike sales actually exceeded automobile sales, which is pretty incredible. So did that boom lead to the building of cycling infrastructure in America? As cycling began to become more popular in the mid-1960s, people visiting cities in Europe from the United States were witnessing the kinds of cycling infrastructure that has grown up all around Europe, so in the Netherlands and Copenhagen. There was a push among advocates to really embrace more sort of European cycling infrastructure. The first proper Dutch-style bike lanes were put in in Davis, California in this period, in the late 1960s, early 1970s. And the expectation, the goal of the administration at the time, was to build 100,000 miles of these things. And this is not like just the, the baby boomers wishing this. This was from the Environment Ministry. This is from the Transport Secretary. They were planning some incredibly ambitious networks of cycleways. If that had have happened, and as we now know, it, of course, it didn't happen, but had it have happened, then America would be a much bigger bicycle use than, than the Netherlands. And one of the reasons it didn't happen in America was because of a cycling advocate named John Forrester. Forrester wrote a book called Effective Cycling, which essentially was a form of cycling that basically assumed that the bicycle should act. Cyclists should learn to be aggressive and ride sort of in the middle of the road. Much more of a mentality that was oriented around sports cycling, which was one of the major things that emerged during the bike boom in the 1960s and 70s, sort of a, a shift from slower, heavier safety bicycles to lighter, light frame road bikes. Forrester became a major disruptive figure in pushing for against legislation that was intended to sort of adopt the European cycling model, even went so far as to coerce the state of California to withdraw proposals for cycle tracks and was consistently advocating against what at the time were called side path laws. But then after the mid-1970s, you know, bicycle sales started to plummet. At the same time, you had this kind of incredible shift away from cycling-friendly policies at the federal level. And so Forrester's voice and what became to be known as the vehicular cycling movement really filled that void. And basically from the mid-1970s until the early 2000s, there wasn't a coordinated, organized push to try and reintroduce European cycling infrastructure model in the United States, really until about a little over a decade ago. And that emphasis on sports cycling, as opposed to everyday cycling, took hold across the Anglo-Saxon world. So in Australia, in New Zealand, in the UK, in America, that sport aspect of cycling, even though it, it very much fueled the industry and the industry did very well out of people buying very, very expensive 
bicycles, it didn't do a great deal for utilitarian everyday cycling. And that sport aspect has been something that has deflected from cycling becoming mainstream form of transport, a normal form of transport. So in the Netherlands, cycling is just totally, totally, utterly normal. It's coming that way in other countries, but nowhere near as normal as it is in the Netherlands. You're boringly normal. At the beginning of the 21st century, as cities struggled with growing populations and a young middle class that didn't want a long commute to work, cycling once again emerged as a mode of transport. I think what we see in the 21st century is that cities have discovered cycling as a way to enhance their livability index and as a way to promote the city as a, a nice place to live for the middle class. Cycling has become a way to measure how nice it would be to live in a certain city if you are a wealthy, creative person. And in that sense, many European cities have developed bicycle programs, have started to rebuild cycling paths. So there is this effort to embrace cycling culture and integrate it into an urban lifestyle. What happens in early 2000s is, I think, a, a mirror of what started to happen in the mid-1970s, which is basically an increasing interest and concern about issues of climate change, environmental issues, a push really being led first by cities and then increasingly at the federal level to hit emissions targets and beyond automobiles. And so beginning with cities in the Pacific Northwest, but then quickly spreading to a resurging interest in expanding urban bike networks. And what in many ways crystallized a lot of this was the Bloomberg administration in New York City very aggressively began to expand its bike network. And obviously, when things happen in New York, they start to gain national media attention and they become a kind of model that other cities and other places start to embrace. Then the coronavirus struck and everything changed. In Paris, people queued outside a second-hand bike shop for a new mode of transport. It's being encouraged as dozens of miles of new and temporary lanes will open in the capital city. Paris is definitely a poster child and Hildego is definitely using this to accelerate existing plans. So she already had some ambitious plans for, for Paris and she's just speeded them up. I live in Newcastle in Northern England. Today I cycled and I could see that next to the, one of the major hospitals in, in the city, they removed all the parking spaces and just coned it out. Tomorrow that's going to be emergency cycleways put in. And that's just phase one. I've seen the plans which are incredibly ambitious. Places like Milan are doing this. There are just so many places. And then in the Netherlands, which are already bicycle friendly, you're removing a lot of existing space on the roads for cars and they're going to turn that over to restaurants. So Rotterdam, Amsterdam, having all of these al fresco eateries all of a sudden on what would have been roads that people were driving on two weeks ago. But can this new bike boom last? 
I tend to be skeptical because the factor, for example, the power of the car industry in Germany, how powerful they are and how they push up sales. It's an enormous industry. There are enormous interests. So that makes me skeptical about the will and the courage of politicians to withstand this pressure. I hope for the good. I hope for more bicycling. It would be a good thing for the environment, for the climate, for health. But at the same time, I'm a little bit skeptical because bicycling is about long-term ingrained habits and you cannot change these habits overnight. Even a crisis like the corona crisis cannot change these habits overnight, I think. Harry Oosterhaus, Professor of History at the University of Maastricht. My other guests, David Vega Barakowitz from WXY Studio, New York City. Anna Katrina Ebert from the Vienna Technical Museum. Carlton Reed, journalist with Forbes.com. And Jim Fitzpatrick, author of Wheeling Matilda. The sound engineer is Simon Branthwaite. I'm Annabel Quince, and this is Rear Vision on Radio National. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.